Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. This is a replay of a conversation I had with Rebecca Salazar of Plenitude back in 2018. One of the reasons I'm returning to this conversation is that in my membership community called Writerly Love, we're exploring appropriation in writing this month with our monthly theme being care. And I find this inner battle happens whenever I approach appropriation in my own writing and think about writing across difference of culture or class, as I discussed in my most recent new episode with the Thames editors, episode 51. And I so want to have a formula. That's why this inner battle is happening. I want to not get it wrong. And essentially, my bent for perfectionism means I want to get things right. I'm putting that in air quotes and not make a harmful mistake or frankly, embarrass myself for being ignorant. So what I appreciate most in this interview that covers a lot of topics, like what is can lit really, RuPaul's Drag Race even, and why submitting to contests isn't always the best choice. But what I appreciate most is Rebecca Salazar saying about all of this is what really matters is just being willing to be wrong because you're going to be wrong more than once. And I have been wrong before, by the way, and I survived. And I think it was always better for me to attempt to navigate these ethics versus ignore them because I can't be perfect. Perfectionism really has no place in writing and in relationships and in reconciling difference, maybe especially in reconciling difference. So with that in mind, here is my conversation with Rebecca Salazar, Associate Poetry Editor of Plenitude. Welcome, Rebecca Salazar. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I want to start by asking you how you became a writer, your origin story as a writer. Did you know other writers growing up, for example? I think there was a point when I was about eight years old, being a pretty lonely kid in a small city in Sudbury, Ontario, that I just decided I was going to be a writer at eight years old because I didn't really know what else to do with myself. It was a weird upbringing in that I was a child of immigrants and getting bullied a lot in school. So I think I just kind of centered on books as my escape from that and as my way of just finding other people and characters to kind of become friends with in that way. And eventually I started writing my own short stories and little things like that. I started actually shopping a, a novel and scare quotes novel 
um, when I was about 12 years old, because I got pretty into the idea of writing and, and publishing. Obviously, that didn't really go anywhere because I was a 12 year old writing kind of terribly. But it gave me this sort of opening to learn about this writing industry and the publishing industry. That was, I could tell from a very early age, I could feel living in Northern Ontario that there was this sort of vortex of Toronto where all of the publishing happened and all the writing happened and all the writers that I was eventually learning about were living and writing, which was difficult because it was a place I didn't really have access to. And as I grew up and kind of started introducing myself to people as a writer, despite not being published or only really taking it seriously to myself, I started meeting other writers once I got into university. One of my friends, uh, Brendan Vidito, and I uh, met up with some other students at the university and started a, a literary journal because we, we felt that sort of lack of resources or accessible community for writers and decided that it was something we could do something about. So we built this literary journal called Sulfur. We had no idea what we were doing at the time. And a few of us had read literary journals, but never really worked for one because there was just nothing in the area. So it was such an improvised thing. And we as writers who none of us really at the time had any publications just started kind of improvising. And it eventually turned into something we were able to provide. Um, we were able to provide like what we had been missing as young writers, as emerging writers to other people. We ended up meeting in town who really had also felt that same lack. And it was such a great experience actually just getting to see the impact that had on some people who we gave their first publication. And that was a feeling I really held on to as I later like started working more with literary journals, which I've been doing for about 10 years now. So you got the bug early, really, of that joy of being able to help someone else have their words seen in print. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I had that experience before I had the experience of being published myself, or maybe around the same time. And it was such an addictive feeling to provide that, that I, I couldn't be away from it. And I knew that part of my development as a writer was going to have that element to it of also wanting to provide space for other writers to be published as well. I love that. I also love how much you managed to pick up at 12. I remember submitting to Green <laughs> Magazine when I was like in my early teens and just being like, okay, well, I'm terrible. They don't know anything. Like they, they don't like my writing. This sucks. And so I'm not going to submit to a journal for a long time. But I, I didn't understand the industry at all at the time. So I think it's it's fascinating that you picked up something that's quite true, that there's a lot that centers around Toronto and, and it's still true today. Mm-hmm. It was funny. I found my way into that just by going to a local library and picking up a really outdated copy of the Canadian writer's market because I, I knew that writing happened in the States a lot, but I didn't know much about the Canadian scene. And uh, just by like picking that up, I started like getting a feel for which publishing houses were around, who was publishing what, what some of the journals were at the time. And of course, this was all outdated information, but it kind of gave me that sort of grounding in something I didn't know how to access at the time too. I felt like everything I wanted to write or could think of myself writing didn't fit the version of CanLit that I saw, things that I saw in school or in like the bestseller lists and that sort of thing. I knew that CanLit was this sort of nature poetry and, and novels about like the logging industry and someone's tragic marriage. 
but I didn't see anything beyond that sort of white men-centric realism until I started looking into literary journals and then finding out that there was so much more going on. Yeah, there's such a more vibrant scene, I guess, even even some time ago, but more so today, I would say, that that's happening and pushing things forward and reacting and pushing up against Canlit, which is super exciting. That's something that I love about it. Is that is that what you're getting at too? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think for a long time, that idea of Canlit and like, you can read Northrop Fry and, and those other people who are agonizing over like Canada doesn't have its own literature or its own national identity in literature, where most of the people who obsess over that project of having a national literature end up centering it on so many really narrow and exclusive, exclusive kinds of narratives and voices. So there's a lot that doesn't get included in that, that I think most of the writers that are publishing excitingly today are resisting that or have discarded the idea of needing to be part of something cohesive. And I think that willingness to resist narratives and that sort of innovative spirit in the writing that's happening now is so much more exciting than anyone trying to create a singular can-lit identity. So I'm thinking back to the eight-year-old you who decided to be a writer and was like reading these works and not seeing yourself or your your story and and finding a space within Canlit, but also knowing that you had synesthesia, if that's how you say it. And, yeah. And how that experience, I guess, sort of mingled with you you becoming a writer. Yeah, that's a good question. I had a poem called Synesthesia that uh, was published in the Malahat Review. And um, yeah, it is something that early on, I, as a child who grew up speaking Spanish and then went into English and French immersion schools, I started noticing that the easiest way for me to learn languages was to kind of let these color associations form with letters and sounds and concepts and things like that and kind of associate them across languages that way. And it definitely started to inform my poetry early on. A lot of the times that I was writing, I remember deleting entire paragraphs or anything like that. If I felt like the lettering or the the recurring sounds in it were the wrong color or the wrong feel for a sensation or anything that I was trying to describe. So I've definitely kind of used that a little bit. And I think because it all came out on this background of not identifying with the literature I was seeing, grounding myself in very concrete details and the physical and the way that evoked abstract concepts like colors to me, I think still is a big part of how I write. I'm curious about the synesthesia when you talk about like colors being associated with words. And I'm wondering if you even just have an example for our listeners about how how exactly that works or how that's worked in, in specific poems that you've written. One thing I find myself obsessing about a lot is like vowel sounds and the colors I associate with them. I tend to think of O sounds as really dark. So when I'm writing something with a darker tone that isn't aggressive, I try to use a lot of more O sounds, <laughs> whereas like A sounds and I sounds are really bright or more aggressive than that. Um, so I'll try to bias it that way. You also mentioned that your first language is Spanish and that you now are writing in English and that you're bringing that a certain attention to language. And we talked about coupling that with synesthesia. Can you tell me about I guess, do you feel like you have readers out there who can understand the hidden layers of your of your work? And have you had that kind of response from readers or that connection with readers and other writers even who are experiencing language in that way? 
Yeah, I've talked about this with a, a few other writer friends who are speaking English as their second, third, fourth language, not their first anyway. And there's always this sort of disjunction between like, like a, a sort of translation in some ways. And the way that we understand certain words is based on how we've seen them written, or sometimes there's the issue of you want to use a word because you've seen it written a million times and you know what it means, but then you've never heard it pronounced out loud. So you are reading at a poetry reading and then you pronounce this word and everyone tells you how you got it wrong. So that's a kind of a common experience I found with uh, other people who are speaking English as not their mother tongue. I do, however, find that a lot of people expect a certain version of Spanishness or Latinness in my writing. And I have at times felt like I was forced to perform that in a way that I don't feel like I can. I've written a few poems where I, I play with Spanish and I throw in a few words or a phrase. And often this is when I'm feeling most disconnected from the language because I have lost a lot of the language. I don't really have a community where I can speak it. Most of my schooling was in French language systems and now I'm studying English. So I haven't really, especially being in small towns most of my life, gotten that really, that element of being able to talk to other people and like keep my vocabulary in Spanish or just have that musicality around me. And I've been asked a few times where that is or why I don't write more in Spanish. And it's because there's that disconnect from the language and the culture as well. The wee bits of culture that I get from my parents' background are things that are kind of like outdated and also kind of displaced because I've never had a tangible connection to them. And the version that I get through them is not just secondhand, but also at a 30-year, 40-year remove from the place they left way back when. Can you tell me about the discourse between creative nonfiction and poetry and how you kind of navigate writing those those two genres? And is your approach different? The material that you draw from, is it different? Oddly, I came to creative uh, nonfiction by accident. I, a couple of years ago, was doing uh, a studio course as part of my, my PhD, which I'm still in. I had basically just taken too many of the courses already and needed to do something else. So I ended up working with uh, Trini Finley, who's a professor here and one of my supervisors. And she she basically had me writing sort of just a prose response in addition to the poetry, to things I was reading or kind of taking in to write the project I was working on at the time. And eventually some of those responses, Trini started telling me that they felt like essays and needed more time and attention. So I started trying to flesh those out. But I was approaching them in the same way that I approach poetry. And I think with some of the recent creative nonfiction I've written too, and some of the stuff that I'm still working on, I still think of it very much in the sense of poetry. It's all flashes of imagery or sensations that I kind of develop episodically in a sense. Um, I'll sometimes bring in the things I've learned from doing academic writing, but then to write them into a creative nonfiction piece, I have to take away a lot of that structure, a lot of the logic that goes into academic writing to, I feel like I need the freedom of poetic association to get around some of the topics I'm writing about. Because most of them are really emotional. Um, <laughs> and there's always that kind of play between writing about politics when they are too personally situated close to you. And I think... There's a lot of room in creative nonfiction to, just as there is in poetry, to, to situate yourself really explicitly in relation to the subject matter. There's always going to be a subject writing. 
in in that sort of genre I find or both genres and I think that sort of situatedness is something I'm really drawn to I love that connection you're making that those are the things that are drawing you to those two genres then that that situating yourself and being able to personally respond to politics for sure it um, is making me think a bit of an interview that I did with Euphemia Fantetti about um, where she says right rhymes with fight for a reason and that there's sort of <laughs> that ability to then sort of push up against forces that can happen within writing. Yeah, I do think having done and read a lot of academic writing just through my schooling, as I mentioned, I'm in a PhD program right now, which means I get quite a bit of the academic side of things. And I think one of the things that's generally but not always lacking from that that kind of writing is the recognition that nothing is ever fully objective and things like creative nonfiction and poetry, I find strip away any pretension of objectivity by radically situating the subject and the writer and their personal relationship with the subject matter, which then you can't, you can't quite dehumanize a subject that you're writing about when you're situating yourself in relationship to it, I think. And that is something that a few academic writers are doing and trying to get around using particular versions of identifying themselves uh, or situating themselves with what they study. But it is happening a lot more in creative forms, for sure. And so is it a bit of like almost a cathartic release for you then when you're doing, you're in the academic world and doing the academic reading and writing and then being able to write in these other genres? A little bit, yeah. I think for a long time, I, I had to separate them in myself because I was learning to do the academic thing that you're required to do where you're supposed to kind of remove yourself to a critical distance where you don't acknowledge yourself as the writer. And one of the things I'm working on now, I think I've shifted that kind of separation into trying to integrate the two forms and bring some of that recognition of subjectivity into my academic work and also kind of thinking about the fluidity of research as well into the creative forms. I'm going to ask you then about mentoring and how you see that happening within your writer communities and maybe even just how how it's happened over time since you did decide to become a writer. I started off with a lot of sort of optimistic faith in the idea of mentoring, which I've kind of lost over the past few years, especially given a lot of what's happening in CanLit around abusive forms of mentorship basically scenarios where so-called mentors or gatekeepers use their position of power and advisorship to take advantage of young or emerging writers, particularly in sexual manners. And this is something I have gotten closer to than I'd like without going too much into detail. I basically just lost a lot of faith in the idea of mentorship as a safe space. The thing that's really pulling me out of that is the idea of peer mentoring, um, where there isn't as much of a power imbalance or someone who has the sort of authority to give your work validation, like a singular authority over your work, that sort of thing. Because a lot of the a lot of the mentorship that I've valued and that's really taught me a lot of things has been with people who don't sit themselves on a pedestal dictating, but are fellow women or fellow queer women of color, people who base the entire relationship of mentorship around consent and mutual respect for each other instead of as a top-down structure where they're there to teach you and validate you as a mentee. People like 
Alicia Elliott, Kinesia Lubrin, Carrie Ann Lung. Um, these are people that I've I, I had the chance to meet um, during a Banff residency, which had its own issues. But then the mentorship between the participants really became the treasure that I came out of that experience with. What was the BAMP program that you were doing together? I think it was the first ever mentorship for only people of color or racialized people in Canada. It's called Centering Ourselves or something of that nature. Yeah, I just, I remember when the call came out and I had known a few of the people that you mentioned that were there, but I, I love what you said about then turning to peers too and, and finding that kind of mentorship where there is a little bit more mutual respect or a lot more mutual respect. I guess thinking about how that that spirit of mutual respect and learning from each other that I think you can you can still have even if you've been at it for a lot longer than someone that you're working with and I'm wondering if you had that experience when you're editing if editing has informed your own writing and how um yeah I think a lot of my editing work has been pretty detached in the sense of I'm an editor or a reader at a journal and I never actually get to meet the writer for plenitude actually I find this really helpful that in every acceptance letter, there's a paragraph about how we like to work with our writers and we'll usually exchange some editorial suggestions and just have a discussion about the piece before publishing. It's a great model because it kind of provides this temporary or small mentorship for generally marginalized people who won't really have access. So disproportionately, I know that academia or MFA type spaces or paid workshops tend to exclude a lot of lower income and disproportionately queer people, trans people, people of color. So giving those writers something within the publishing structure to kind of give them a taste of that mentorship and like build up the writing on its own terms is something that I really value about my work there. In terms of other editing I've done, um, I recently had the absolute pleasure of editing a chapbook for Matthew Stepanek. Uh, the chapbook is called Relying on That Body. It's uh, a series of poems based on the eliminated drag queens from the most recent season of Drew Paul's Drag Race. And we kind of just ended up as total strangers fangirling about the show enough online and then getting into just private messages, going back and forth and talking about some of the issues on the show And when I found out that Matthew was writing these and he asked me to edit them, it was this wonderful experience where we just got to delve into the poetry and kind of have this mutual exchange about what goes into queer poetry and the things that don't get a lot, that aren't allowed to be said in queer poetry too. And this is a bit of a tangent, I suppose, to your question, but going back to that idea of peer mentorship, it was, I, I definitely didn't feel like it was one person having more power than the other. And there's a sort of mutual exchange there and like a mutual fangirling that kind of equalizes a lot, a lot of the uh, the mentorship structure or the editing structure. One of the things I, I like about hearing about that project too is is even what's liter- like what's considered a literary topic even. And I like that it's about RuPaul's Drag Race. That's great. <laughs> yeah, there's a surprising amount of uh, drag race poetry. I, actually, this is a, Bit of a spoiler for anyone, or maybe it's a teaser for whoever might have a a subscription to The Fiddlehead or might be interested in the the summer poetry issue, which is coming out really soon. Um, A couple of Matthew's poems from that chapbook are in there, as well as, I think, one or two poems by Joshua Whitehead that are also about RuPaul's Drag Race. And I was joking with the other editors that it was just my mission to to make the 
the new issue as draggy and queer as possible. <laughs> and Plenitude defines queer literature and and film as that which is created by LGBTQI people. What developments in queer representation do you cherish today in terms of, I guess, thinking of the trajectory of your time being focused on Canlit and what's happening in literature? And then what changes do you wish to see? I first saw myself kind of represented or recognized myself um, in, I think, two books that I can think of that are on the same shelf where I just keep all the things that I will never get rid of. Uh, The first book was All-Inclusive by Frazana Doctor, um, which is the first time I ever saw any character representing the woman of color who is poly or bisexual, who is confused about her queerness and articulating that in a way that she isn't quite sure about the terminology yet. And that was something I came across that novel um, at a time when I was really going through the same thing. I was kind of coming into identifying as queer and still working through a lot of cultural and religious uh, baggage that I needed to get through before I stopped denying that side of myself. The other book I'm thinking of is um, Eduardo C. Corral's uh, Slow Lightning, which is the first time I ever saw a Latinx queer voice coming into its own and not just writing about one aspect of their existence, but showing how every intersection that you embody suffuses every experience that you have, whether they're difficult experiences or whether they're joyful or celebratory or erotic or so those two books are things that I definitely cherish um, to this day and will probably for a long time. In terms of what I'm looking forward to is just more of that. I want to see more of every kind of queer experience, trans experience, two-spirit experience. I know there's a a group of two-spirit poets who are coming up quite strongly lately and I've been loving everything they produce. People like Joshua Whitehead, Ariel Twist, Billy Ray Belcour. There's so much fire in that sort of coming into one's own. Um, And there's this community that's basically springing out of places we neglected to look. And there's so much power in their words and their writing and the way that they're innovating on poetry and other forms in ways that no one's ever really seen before. I'm also really excited about seeing more creative nonfiction by, by queer people of color, uh, particularly um, someone else I was in Banff with, Natalie Wee, whose poetry is incredible, um, has also recently taken up, taken up an editor position at Extra uh, Magazine Online. And everything she's been soliciting and publishing out there is making so much room for more people of color who experience their queerness or transness or whatever their gender or sexual identity is to tell their stories and show basically every aspect of that experience in ways that is just off, like not often enough represented. We need more stories of all kinds, I think. And that sounds a bit cheesy, but I do stand by it. Not cheesy at all. It just sounds, sounds true and, and just exciting when, when I hear you listing those names and the people coming up, the two-spirited writers who are really doing amazing stuff. I'm interrupting my conversation with Rebecca Salazar to invite you to hone your craft, build your writing platform, and connect with other luminous creative writers in the Writerly Love community. 
This is my warm, inclusive, and supportive membership community for creative writers to get together, learn about writing and building a writing platform, and growing a luminous writing career. If you're ready to learn and grow, to trust yourself and an open and honest writer who has got your back, that's me, I'd love to have you join the Writerly Love membership community. Registration opens only a few times per year and it's open as of right now until June 15th. You can learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash join. I want to thank a sponsor for this episode, Mum Egg Review. Mum Egg Review is open for submissions of poetry, fiction, creative prose and art for an issue themed mother figures. They seek work that engages with archetypes of mother in history, religion, pop culture, TV shows slash movies, mythology, fairy tales, more. Submissions close on July 15th and you can find information and guidelines at mumeggreview.com slash submit. I'm back with Rebecca Salazar of Plenitude and who also works at The Fiddlehead, an editor at The Fiddlehead. And we're going to dig into the nitty gritty about submissions at those journals. So I want to ask you, what kind of submissions do you not want in your inbox at Plenitude? I think generally the rule that I, I stop reading something if I feel like there's nothing at stake. This is really hard to define, but it's something that I keep coming back to in having read uh, a lot of slush piles. There are a lot of poems that are very technically accomplished, or you can tell that someone's done the work with the language or the sound or the form, but there's nothing at stake in the content. And this isn't to say that content and craft are fully separable, which because I, I think they're very entangled. But a lot of the times when you have just all flash and no fire, then there's really something missing then. I do, I do know that I've encountered like very many manifestations of this and it does generally come from people who don't feel an urgency in their writing, but are writing from a comfortable place. And this doesn't mean that every piece of writing has to be traumatic or about something depressing or violent. It doesn't mean you can't write about comfort or joy, but it does mean that those those poems, no matter what they're about or how they approach the world, have to need to happen. There has to be a need in them to come into the world. There has to be something at stake in them. This is a bit of a side note, but now that I've thought about it a little more, another thing I don't want to see is people appropriating or kind of using any kind of urgency that they see in the world that they don't have a personal connection to in order to kind of spice up their poems. Um, I could get into discussions about appropriation and the recent turmoil in Kenlit around that, but to avoid kind of going on a tower rant, never treat anything like an object, even objects, basically. I think poetry that has that urgency that I'm talking about really takes the the knowingness of whatever the subject is seriously and recognizes that and lets it speak for itself while also speaking back in dialogue with it. There are kinds of knowledge that are not ours. And there are kinds of knowledge that we cannot embody. Um, even if we recognize them and want to speak with them, we have to let them speak for themselves. Additionally, even if we're having a conversation, a lot of that writing in conversation has to be about listening. And so I asked you specifically about your inbox at Plenitude. 
I would I would assume that a lot of those apply to the fiddlehead too. That you're you're looking again for more fire than flash, or definitely flash and fire combined. Is there any distinction between the kind of things maybe you're seeing more at at fiddlehead versus plenitude? Yeah, I actually do get quite a bit more of the all flash no fire stuff at the fiddlehead, um, and I think it has to do with the demographics a little bit. I do find that the this is nothing against the fiddlehead or its submitters at all, but at Plenitude, I already know that all those submissions are coming from people who identify as LGBTQ+. And there's always some kind of struggle already there that needs to be worked through in their writing. As soon as someone who identifies in a way that isn't normative or who has been marginalized in any way begins to struggle through those issues and try to write, that need to write comes a bit from that struggle and that urgency is often there more like more than I'm seeing elsewhere, I think. So I encounter a lot more of the fire in Plenitude's submission pile, or at least proportionally, because a lot of these writers are kind of using writing as a political act of self-declaration, of reclaiming who they are and their identities. And that really does give it a lot of shape in relation to, say, some of the the more comfortable stuff that does come into the fiddlehead. And this is something that the fiddlehead editors and I have discussed quite a bit is like, how do we get people who don't feel like they're writing the comfortable writing that the fiddlehead is known for to submit? Because it is something that the editors want is to, to expand and be publishing more experimental voices and more diverse voices. But it's hard to kind of shift that perception when it's, well, the fiddlehead is an institution that's been around for 75 years and has certain things associated to it that are hard to get behind and hard to get through. Yeah, it's a bit actually the shift maybe that that happened at Room 2. And I I can see that happening at the Fiddlehead just based on their choices of who's now sitting at the table, yourself included, that they're Mm -hmm. looking to signal and to let um, more diverse voices speak in their pages. That's great. Yeah, this weekend, actually, we just had... um, uh, a couple of workshops in Fredericton. We had Alicia Elliott, who is the new creative nonfiction editor, and uh, Rebecca Thomas, who's a spoken word performer and poet in Halifax, come in to do workshops for the community on creative nonfiction and on poetry for free. So this was a big deal for the Fiddlehead, was offering this opportunity to learn from these amazing women of color writers and showcasing their work through a reading we had that night, but also allowing people to interact and learn from writers who are doing a lot of the new work that's really changing what Camlet looks like. We also had a, a bit of a discussion the next day with Alicia, just talking about how the Fiddlehead can fix or expand the diversity of its submissions and work on some of our initiatives that are kind of in the works for the 75th year celebration. We have a few things up our sleeve, I think, um, including the nonfiction issue, actually. Yeah, it's it's a place where the work is definitely happening. As with anything, it's slow work and does often require a lot of awkwardness and uncomfortable conversations, but being willing to go there and talk about one's flaws as an institution or as individual editors, that's part of the work that needs to be done. No matter how uncomfortable it gets, it's it's worse to just avoid the conversation and keep perpetuating the problem of lack of representation and that sort of thing. Yeah, just facing the issue and doing what you can always matters. 
I think that's great. And it's a little bit of a roadmap maybe for other LitMag editors who are listening out there who are wondering how to make that kind of institutional change. Uncomfortable conversations definitely, I think, is the top of the list of what I see happening. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that too. Yeah, I think really what matters in it all is just be willing to be wrong because you're going to be wrong more than once. And Alicia kind of said this in some of the workshops we did too. Just be ready to be wrong a few times and move on from it. Keep learning. What should writers expect when their work is accepted by you? So when they've they've come in into a submission, they've got both flash and fire. Do you make developmental suggestions? I know you mentioned already the letter that Plenitude sends out about the relationship that you're building, but but how? I guess how much do you roll up your sleeves with your writers? For me, uh, in the poems I've accepted so far, and I'm still pretty new at Plenitude, so I haven't accepted too many yet, but I found that my approach is generally to obsess over the poem so much that I just like get into its head and tried to learn it, learn how it's thinking. So a lot of the comments I end up returning to writers when I do return edits to them are things like obsessing over the line breaks and asking them why they're doing particular things instead of saying, oh, you should be doing this. Ask them why they're doing what the poem is doing. I think that's one of the important things I try to keep in mind when editing is I want to approach the poem on its own terms or on the writer's own terms and not impose my own thinking or aesthetics on it. A couple of the poems I've accepted are completely outside my my own aesthetics. So I don't write anything like them. So I don't want to impose anything that I would that I would want to do on the writer's work. So a lot of that has to do with just trying to give the writer my eyes to try on. So I'll show them what I'm noticing and what I'm asking why about and then let them answer once they're able to see that. And a lot of this too comes from recognizing my own privilege as an editor, um, as someone who's had a lot of academic training and a lot of literary training and a lot of experience as an editor in positions of sort of this weird power, like this gatekeeper position, which I feel uncomfortable with sometimes, but trying to share that with the writer and giving them agency within that structure, I think is really important to me. So if a writer gets back to me when I've given them a comment saying, why do you have this word as your line break and not this one? And if they get back to me with a reason, then yeah, I've made them, I've I've kind of started this conversation about like line breaks and why we choose certain words to center in different parts of the page or why we visually put weight on certain words instead of just telling them like, oh, cut the line here. (laughs) Because I think forwarding the education on how to look at poems that I've got is the only way I can use that. Because if I'm just keeping it to myself and then imposing it top down, that feels really wrong and also unfair to the writers. I find that so generous what you're saying. I love that. And I'm with you in terms of trying to meet the poem on its own terms and saying, okay, yeah, you've got this. Yeah. And so many times when I I get an answer back from someone who tells me, oh, I was doing it for this reason, this reason, it teaches me something too that I've never thought of. Absolutely. It teaches me how people kind of think through poetry and how they structure their thinking and their imagery in ways that I might not have encountered before. I've definitely learned a lot from that. Can you describe any works that stand out as important that you've published in Plenitude in your time there? So a lot of the works that come to mind when I think about Plenitude are, before I was an editor, I would see a writer whose writing I already had this sort of like poetry crush on come up on the website and 
be like fangirling in my own little cor- little corner <laughs> about how, okay, this person is queer. We can identify over this. We have something in common. And then I would just like feel a lot closer to their work in that way. In terms of stuff that I have recently accepted for Plenitude since starting there, the first poem I accepted was uh, All You Can Eat Oyster Bar by Sarah Patterson, whose work I, I think I'd read an essay of hers before, but only realized that it was by the same person after her publication. She wrote this kind of hilarious, dark poem that's like a gory, historicized version of the, like a sort of queer sex scene with Elizabeth Stewart and uh, Mary Queen of Scots. And it's got so much in it that I just did not expect. It surprised me in so many ways. And that was one of the poems that I was definitely like 100% certain on from the beginning. And uh, getting to work with her on some really minor edits on that was so much fun because it just made me think so much about the way that she was using bodies and histories and there's a lot of puns actually to craft this poem something else that's um forthcoming right now and full disclosure this is uh, a poem by someone i consider a friend i have a poem that i recently accepted that isn't up on the website yet called uh white people think i'm white like and it's by eli Tarek lynch who is doing something really beautiful in this poem about white passingness as a person of color, as a mixed race person, and how that intersects with queerness and transness in their own experience. So hoping people can look forward to that poem as well. Do you know what the current acceptance rate of submissions is at Plenitude? I'm not sure what it is exactly. I don't know numbers, but I do know that we have a higher acceptance rate for Canadian writers purely based on the proportion of submissions we receive. Due to Canada Council requirements, we have to publish a certain number of Canadian submissions or Canada-based writers in comparison to international or American. The problem right now is that a lot of the Americans submitting, um, well, there's a lot more of them. So we have to be a little bit harder on submissions that aren't coming from Canada, which is sometimes really unfortunate because you'll have really strong work that you just have to hold at a higher bar and that gets frustrating at times um, just because we ha- we can't offer space to those writers as much. But I will say that there is a lot more room for Canada-based or Canadian writers to submit to Plenitude. Uh, in particular, I would really love to see more people of color submitting, uh, more trans people, more disabled people submitting, because those are still voices that are underrepresented in our submission pile. That's great to hear. And, and I guess it's good news for the Americans who make it in just to know that they've been selected from a larger pool, let's say, but with a narrower selection. And I appreciate what you're saying about wanting more writers of color and more disabled writers and more trans writers to submit as well. Now, I want to talk a little bit about contests before I let you go. So I know you've sure. won some writing contests. I'm wondering if you can talk about the importance of contests for emerging writers. Yeah, I have some skepticism about contests. And I say this at risk of sounding really ungrateful for contests that have really helped me publish and kind of get my writing out there. I am really grateful for the fact that I've won a couple of contests and been shortlisted here and there. And I know how difficult that can be, particularly because it's so subjective. Like every single judge of every contest is going to choose differently based on their aesthetic, their considerations, 
what they're looking for in that particular moment, which might change if they were doing a contest in another place or time. So I, I will say that contests are not an objective determinant of your writing and its value. They're kind of just a flash in the pan and whatever sparks up, sparks up. And I have had the fortune of getting a couple of contest wins that I think what I valued more than the win itself was getting to hear back from the judges and hearing their feedback. And I will say that feedback is amazing and it, it validates you so much more than say the praise or the name being announced on Twitter and that sort of thing. That conversation is really what matters in them. I will say mostly I've used contests to get subscriptions to magazines because if you're going to subscribe to something and be reading it, you may as well throw a poem at them while you're at it and get a bit of a discount, which is generally the case. And support the magazines too. Yeah. A lot of the time that's how they make their money is on the contests. Yeah, definitely. Um, that does support the magazines in a huge way. But one of the things that I become skeptical of then is the sort of barrier that an entry fee puts up to a lot of marginalized writers, especially. Mm -hmm. um, that is going to disproportionately affect younger, disabled people of color, any writer with some kind of financial difficulty. So there's a lot of exclusion happening right there. And I know that a few journals have started offering a certain number of free submissions to particularly Indigenous peoples, which is fantastic. But there isn't enough of that sort of sliding scale of entry fees yet or that adaptability to be able to invite more voices that are being excluded by the entry fee and the expense thereof. I do kind of have this like competitive optimist streak where I think that contests are a great idea. And I love the idea of kind of having someone get the privilege of reading all this poetry as much as I know that probably is a ton of work and just seeing what their tastes are like. I've, I've definitely seen a lot of writers I admire um, judge contests recently, and I've been so interested in what they select and why. So I think reading the contest results is more about that to me, is finding out like what are people paying attention to in poetry and why, why are they doing that? I do know that that can be at times problematic also, though. I remember this article a few years ago. I think it was by Colin Fulton. Um, it was sort of a breakdown of the, the racial composition of contests, both the winners and the judges. And it was overwhelmingly white. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the, the barriers that the entry fee puts up and the sort of intimidating nature of a contest as this sort of competition for eliteness, which automatically is going to discourage anyone who's been excluded from eliteness for whatever reason. So I think to a lot of people who hesitate to submit to contests, I would say if you can afford it, please do flood these submission piles with everything that isn't expected or isn't represented enough. That said, I also put the onus on, on magazines and people who run contests to lower their submission fees or offer sort of a pay what you can model if possible. And it's also, I guess you're saying it's the, and I, I would agree that it's like that intimidation of the competition sometimes that becomes a barrier, the price becomes a barrier. But then what you're talking about too, in terms of the judges too, if all the judges look a certain way in that old canlit style, then they're going to automatically deter people who are writing new stuff or writing from, from different experiences. So can you tell me before I let you go, what other projects you're working on right now? 
Right now I'm working on a few different things that are in very developmental stages to the point of being like drafts I would never show anyone, even people I workshop with. Um, so I'm working on a few nonfiction essays, one which is giving me especially a lot of trouble on uh, sexual assault and sort of the context in like can lit and the Me Too moment that's happening right now or maybe failing to happen right now. So that's the one that can't really be written at the moment. Um, and that might take a couple of years to actually figure out how to write about. But I am also working on some poetry that is sort of adjacent to that. I, I have the chance right now to work with Mallory Tater from Rahila's Ghost Press. They recently accepted my second chapbook of poetry, which is I'm a little bit worried about it coming out into the world because I, I basically just took all the poems that didn't fit with the rest of my work um, that felt too angry or too traumatic or too traumatized to fit with any of my other writing. And I put them in a pile and sent them off and now they're going to be printed and out in the world. So I, I have so much, so much love for Rahila's ghost and for Mallory for taking that on and being willing to give us space. All that sounds so wonderful, and I wish you the best of luck. And I'm I would love to read these poems that are the ones that are too angry or or too <laughs> challenging. That sounds like it's got all that urgency that we were talking about. What other lit mags do you love that you want to give a shout out to now? That's a great question. I have to put in a plug for Sulfur, the one that I started in Sudbury. They're still going; it's still run by students, and it's kind of a, a scrappy little thing that keeps going, which I love seeing. On an equal ground, I love seeing like small student-run or volunteer-run magazines, places like the Impressment Gang or QWERTY, which is based at UNB here, and which I've also edited uh, a few times. QWERTY just recently went back into print after being online for a little while. So they're kind of building up to do big new things as well. I'll give a shout out to Room, for sure, to Prism. A friend of mine just started working at the Antigonish Review and Patrick O'Reilly. He's trying to really change the way that they accept work and really diversify the sort of vision that people have of the Antigonish Review, which is generally known to be a lot more old-fashioned, but he's really working at expanding that. And I love to see what he's doing. There are really too many others to name, but shout out to any and all like volunteer-run journals out there, because it is a hard job to do. And particularly when you're not being paid or barely getting funding or using your own out-of-pocket funds to print or publish online or however that's working. So how, how can writers follow or connect with you? Um, I am relatively active on Twitter, where I either rage post about Canlit or just post ridiculous puns. But I can also be reached that way to have any kind of conversation. And my handle is at LeonRxS. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So that was my conversation with Rebecca Salazar, Associate Poetry Editor of Plenitude. As of this re-release, Plenitude is only accepting submissions by Canadian authors. That includes Canadian citizens living in Canada or abroad, those who identify as Indigenous and or residents of Canada, temporary residents or refugees. That is only until October 1st, though. So listeners who don't fit into this criteria, you have until then to prepare a submission for this journal that publishes queer literature defined as works created by LGBTQ2S plus people, 
rather than works which feature queer content alone. Their guidelines also mention they are not interested in genre writing, political essays, or rants, but they recognize that LGBTQ2S plus experiences are often inherently political, so they invite submissions that explore this through creative writing. They publish poetry, fiction, nonfiction, book reviews, and articles. You must query for the latter. And their writers are paid $35 Canadian per poem and $80 Canadian per prose contribution, including book reviews and articles. You can find all their guidelines at plenitudemagazine.ca. And the link for that is also in the show notes for this episode. And thanks again to episode sponsor Mum Egg Review. Don't forget to submit your poetry, fiction, creative prose, and art to Mum Egg Review's Mother Figures. That issue has a deadline of July 15th, and you can find information and guidelines at momeggreview.com slash submit. The Writerly Love community is my warm, inclusive, and supportive membership community for creative writers to get together, learn about writing and building a platform, and grow a luminous writing career. If you're ready to learn and grow to trust yourself and an open and honest writer who has got your back, that's me, I'd love to have you join us. Registration opens only a few times per year, and you can learn more and sign up now until June 15th at rachelthompson.co slash join. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you are there, sign up for my writerly love letters sent every other Thursday and filled with support for your writing practice. If this episode encouraged you to not avoid the conversation around appropriation and representation in writing and let go of perfectionism as you do, I would love to hear from you. You can tag me on social media. I'm at Rachel Thompson on Twitter or at Rachel Thompson author on Instagram. And tell other luminous writers about this episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or searching for Write, Publish, and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to keep rising to the challenge and writing luminously. The interview for this episode was recorded on the unsurrendered and unceded traditional Wolastokwe land and on the traditional territories of the Kenyan Kehaka and the Anishinaabeg peoples. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.